Well, if uh, you could have Luke chapter 1, verse 5 onwards open before you, uh, that would uh, be helpful. Uh, I was thinking about books this morning, and I'm thinking about a particular book uh, this evening. Uh, my children, Gwen and Thomas, they don't particularly read hard uh, back uh, books. They like to listen to audio books on a Kindle or a, on a, um, well, they read it on a Kindle, but they listen to it on an Alexa. And one book I've tried to get them to listen to of late is Lord of the Rings. Uh, and uh, it's been a bit of a hard battle, actually, because uh, Gwen just said to me, Dad, this book is just full of big words I don't understand. Uh, but I've wanted them to read it because what a story. It is full of a daring and do and battles and all kinds of unbelievable creatures. Uh, it's a great, great story. And I think the highlight for me of Lord of the Rings, perhaps the, the most powerful bit, it's, uh, it's a fantasy book for anybody who doesn't know. And so it's about uh, uh, goblins and dwarves and uh, other things like that. Uh, and um, it's, it's really, this, this battle is between the good guys and the bad guys. And the good guys are humans and hobbits and things like that. Uh, and then the, the bad guys are, are goblins and, and orcs and horrible creatures. And it's the battle of Helm's Deep. And in that battle, darkness comes. Uh, and the good guys, it's really backs to the wall stuff because... Uh, the, the good guy, Aragorn, the, one of the big uh, heroes, he's almost killed. Uh, and then what you have is, at, at the darkest hour, the bad guys suddenly gather together for one last onslaught on Helm's Deep. And you think this is it for the good guys. And then, in the distance, you see a light. And dawn is breaking. And the sun is coming just above the horizon. And you see a shadow in front of that sun. And you see it's Gandalf the wizard, who is the, the, the real powerful one. And he rushes down the mountainside on a white horse with a massive army of elves behind him. And he smashes these orcs and goblins to smithereens. And what you have is, with the coming of dawn, is deliverance. That's what you've got. And it's a lot like that as you come to Luke chapter 1, and verse 5, there is a deep, deep darkness. That's what you've got as you come into verse 5. Uh, already we, we thought of this this morning where Luke is giving that orderly account to Theophilus so he can be certain of the things that he has been taught. But then verse 5 doesn't really fill the readers of Luke with confidence and certainty uh, because Luke now is giving us the history of Zacharias and, of course, his wife Elizabeth and the promise of John the Baptist. Uh, but the context into which this promise is given uh, comes uh, as one of deep, deep darkness. The first words there are, there was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea. And yes, being the fantastic historian that Luke is, he is fixing his narrative in real history. He's telling his readers this really did happen at a particular moment in time. Uh, it is, of course, talking about Herod, the king of Judea. This is Herod the Great of nativity fame. 
the one who reigned, they tell me, from 37 to 4 BC. And we know of him, of course, from the the, uh, nativity narratives. Uh, And this is towards the end of his reign. But really, as you read that verse, there's a lot more going on than simple historical fact. I'm sure you have been part of or have watched enough nativity plays to know that the kid who gets given the part of Herod, I tell you, it's a hard task, isn't it? Because every time he walks on, he gets booed. Imagine your boy being booed every time he walks onto the stage. Terrible, isn't it? But yes, Herod is the bad guy of the nativity story. But just like the Easter narratives, the story of the nativity has been sanitized and sentimentalized In other words, it's been made into something that it is not. Yes, Herod was indeed the bad guy of the Christmas story. But he wasn't just a bad guy. He was a terrible guy. He was a terrible guy. He was a despot. He was a tyrant. He was cruel. And he was vindictive. And as one commentator says about him, as long as he lived, no woman's honor was safe and no man's life was secure. And apparently, it was safer to be Herod's pig than Herod's son. That's the kind of person that he was. And we all know from reading Matthew chapter 1 what happened when the wise men tricked Herod, and he didn't know where this king of the Jews was to be born. So what does he do? Well, there's infanticide, isn't there? He kills uh, all those boys two years and under, Uh, in Bethlehem and the surrounding area. Well, apparently, this history is not part of the secular history. And people say it's probably because he did so many bad things. The killing of some two-year-old boys and under in in, uh, Bethlehem and the surrounding area was nothing in comparison to the things, the other things that he did. He was that bad. And so, when we read verse 5, what we're supposed to read is, These were days of the deepest darkness. This was a dreadful time to be a living in Judea. And this isn't all. You put yourself in the shoes of any devout, God-fearing, scripture-believing Jew at that time. Uh, You would know that the prophetic voices of the Old Testament had gone silent for just about 400 years. And so on top of the deep darkness, God seems to have left the stage and gone quiet. And it's not difficult, is it, to draw parallels with Judea back then and our current situation in 21st century Britain. It seems to me much like the Battle of Helm's Deep when the darkness was at its darkest. Help seems far away for us, doesn't it? And sometimes non existent. And if you think about 21st century Britain, we're certainly living in a day of spiritual darkness. We heard just the other day from one of our elders in our prayer meeting, uh, he was uh, telling us about the work of the Christian Institute, and it was reporting uh, on attempts to legalize euthanasia and assisted suicide in our country, in in the Isle of Man, and Ireland. And so what you're having just in our day is the sanctity of life being attacked and undermined. If you compare 
And I don't know if you read up on these things, but if you compare the 2011 census with the 2021 census, I did ask for a, for a, a picture to be shown, but yeah, here we go. Um, I'll talk about that in a, in a second. Uh, now, in the 2021 census, which is the latest one that has been done, uh, less than half the population now identify as Christian. It is 46.2%, compared to just in 2011, 59.3%. That's a drop of 5.5 million people. 22.2 million people in Britain now identify as having no religion at all. That's more than a third of the population of England and Wales, which has gone up in 10 years from a quarter. Almost, so pretty much a third of the population. And you can see from this infographic here, you will see that there are dark purple blobs uh, on the map, England and Wales. I wonder where you can see the biggest dark purple blob. It's our area, or pretty much the area where I live. Uh, which is the Southeast Wales Valleys. The dark purple blob is where it is 55% plus of the population having no religion at all. So you can see from England and Wales here uh, that we're not doing too well in the Southeast Wales Valleys. And the Swansea, the county of Swansea, is a pretty uh, a dark picture as well. It's 45% plus. Okay, so that's the area uh, in which I live, and that's the area in which you live, uh, and it doesn't look uh, good at all. For me, for my own county, it's the county of Caerphilly. Caerphilly is at 56% plus, which is the highest uh, in England and Wales. And what can we say about the 46% of people who identify as Christian in our nation are they Bible-believing Christians? Have they truly believed in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins? How many of them truly are saved? And according to research done by the Evangelical Focus in 2022, around 6% of adults in the UK actually say they are practicing Christians. But you can say the same thing about that statistic. How many of that 6% are actually Bible-believing, uh, um, trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, Christians. Uh, we used to say that our nation was a Christian nation, didn't we? But it surely isn't now. Now, statistics don't give the whole story, and statistics can often be misleading. But whatever the case, the darkness around us should bother us. It should bother us like it says in Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20, there are many in our society who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness. It should bother us that there are so many in our society today who know nothing of the way to be saved. It should bother us that there are now generations, plural, of people who know next to nothing of the God of the Bible and give no thought to eternal matters. It should bother us, but it shouldn't bother us to the point of despair. It shouldn't bother us to the point of despair. 
That's why it's good to know that despite the dark colouring of my valley, okay, in that infographic, it doesn't tell the whole story. I had the privilege just the other day of listening to Pastor John Funnell of Novva Church in Abbasach, and maybe you've heard of the work that is going on there. He gave us uh, a history, a potted history of what has been going on in the past 10 years. When he went to Abbasachan first, 10 years ago, there were six people in the church, six in the membership. Now, uh, every Sunday, they have an average of about 150 meeting uh, each week, and they are baptizing people, young and old, regularly. The, uh, the Lord is really doing a great work. Now, what was one of the main features of that church when he first went? Well, his exact words were this. Our prayer times were like no other. Our prayer times were like no other. Um, there would be four people at the prayer meeting. And there was one elderly lady who came in on a Zimmer frame. And they had the prayer meeting at the front of the church where I'm standing. But it was on steps. So there were steps going down to the front. She couldn't get her Zimmer frame down to the front. So she left her Zimmer frame at the top and crawled on her hands and knees to the front of the church in order to be with the rest of her brothers and sisters in Christ to pray to God. And John Funnell said that they used to pray for hours. They prayed for hours. They didn't give into the despair that was perhaps in them because of the deep darkness around them. Like our brothers and sisters in Nodva, the deep darkness should drive us to our knees in personal prayer, but it should also drive us to our church's prayer meeting, where we can pray with our brothers and sisters in Christ to one who can do something about it. That's how powerful prayer is. Because in the, in the deep darkness that we see and feel around us, we really need a light to shine. Because in the darkness of Luke chapter 1, here in verse 5, like dawn breaking in the battle of Helm's Deep, a light does begin to shine, albeit rather dimly at first. So that's my second thing tonight, that there is a dim glow. There's a dim glow. And here, from uh, after verse 5, or from verse 5 onwards, we're introduced to two characters, aren't we? We're introduced to Zacharias uh, and his wife, Elizabeth. Well, what can we say about Zacharias quickly here? Well, he was one of the thousands of priests. There were about 18,000 priests serving at the one temple in Jerusalem. There was just one temple. He was of the division of Abijah, which was one of the 24 divisions of the priesthood. Uh, he was clearly not from Jewish aristocracy. Uh, he was just an ordinary priest. Uh, there's nothing massively impressive about him. His wife was a little bit more impressive because she came uh, from the family of Aaron. He was, his wife was of the daughters of Aaron, it says. So that is Jewish priestly aristocracy. But there are no great fireworks going off yet as you read these words. They're just an, a fairly ordinary couple. We do, however, have an insight into their characters. And that is important. Verse 6 and they were both righteous before God, 
walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord blameless. So what you have in the deep darkness, a light begins to shine because you've got this godly couple, this pious couple, this couple who served God faithfully. Uh, and it's not saying that they were sinless, uh, but they were indeed, as it says here, righteous before God. So God accepted them. He approved of them. Uh, and they were blameless uh, in the sense that no other person could hold anything against them. They had the approval of God and they were not disapproved of by people. That's really what it's saying about them here. Uh, and uh, I think briefly at this point, it's important to note that throughout Scripture, God notices people's characters and their personalities. He notices uh, their conduct, the way that they behave uh, in their lives, whether it is a person who follows God, who is a Christian, or somebody who is yet in unregenerate. You think of Joseph in the Christian narratives. How was he described? Well, you see it in Matthew chapter 1, verse 29. He's found out that Mary is with child, um, and he's described like this. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man or a righteous man and not wanting to make her a public example was minded to put her away secretly. I also thought about Cornelius the centurion in Acts chapter 10. He wasn't a Christian. He was yet unregenerate. But what does it say? There was a certain man, Acts chapter 10 verse 1 and 2, in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian regiment, a devout man and one who feared God with all his household, who gave alms generously to the people and prayed to God always. We've got to remember that not one word of scripture is wasted. Uh, it's clear that a person's conduct, the way that they live their lives, is important to God. And as Christians, we should note Ephesians chapter 4 verse 1, which says that we are to walk worthy of the calling that we have received. So Elizabeth and Zacharias, clearly they are commended to us. Verse 7 though, it begins with a but, doesn't it? But they had no child and they were well advanced in years. And so you've got this godly couple, uh, faithful pe uh, people who were living under the stigma of childlessness. And society back, th back then, they equated having many children with being blessed by God. You were probably being faithful to God, and so he'd bless you with many children. They got that from Psalm 127. Sons are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. But conversely, they saw childlessness as actually the judgment of God. Oh, surely you've done something sinful in your life for you to be in this situation. And so Elizabeth and Zacharias, they are living under that cloud. And well advanced in years suggests that they indeed were quite elderly. They must have been about 60 years old plus. And in fact, Zacharias could have been much older than that because there is no retirement age for priests. And so that the force of the words here is that all human hope of having any children had long gone. We're getting a feeling of the situation as it was for Zacharias 
and Elizabeth. This godly couple, well advanced in years, living under the shadow of a despotic tyrant of a king, a seemingly silent God, the cultural stigma of childlessness, they perhaps are giving up on hope. And it is easy for us to give up on hope. Perhaps you are giving up on hope this evening. Perhaps prayers of yours that have gone up to God for years have remained as far as you know unanswered up to this point. Perhaps longings of yours have been in your heart for years, uh, but up until this point they seem to be unfulfilled. Perhaps you feel that your life is being wasted, that there is a senselessness to it all. Perhaps as Christians we are aching for the Lord's return, but we're not seeing anything happen. It's more like 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 3, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Whatever is going on in our hearts and minds at present, we have to cling on to the fact that with God, nothing is wasted. Nothing is wasted. Like a great tapestry, the back of it is a tangled mess, but the front of it is this wonderful picture of supreme beauty. God does exactly the same. With the tangled mess of our lives, uh, he is creating something wonderful. And you get to Romans and it says that God is working all things. That's an amazing verse, isn't it? Working all things together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. In my notes, I've written the word wowee. And it is, isn't it? Wowee. He is so good and so powerful. Because for Zacharias and Elizabeth, this dim glow that is starting is just about to burst into flame. It really is. And that's my last thing to say this evening. There is a massive flame. What you get here is Zacharias has the opportunity of a lifetime. He is going in to the temple. The lot had uh, fallen to him to burn incense, not just in the temple, but in the most holy place. And for any priest, they only got, got that opportunity once in their lives, and some never got that opportunity at all. So here he is. It's the biggest moment of his career. He walks into the holy place with the other priests. The worshippers are, are outside praying in the outer court, uh, verse 10, and then he goes alone into the most holy place uh, to burn incense, and then boom, this angel appears before him uh, at the right side of the altar of incense. Here at the greatest moment in Zacharias's life, you have a divine interruption a divine interruption, and you have that oft-repeated angelic phrase, don't you? Do not be afraid. Don't be afraid. It's what the angel says to Mary, of course, in verse 30, because, of course, Zacharias is um, experiencing what we would experience if an angel appeared to us. Great fear. Verse 12, and when Zacharias saw him, he was troubled, and fear fell upon him. But then you have that wonderful statement 
of the angel, for your prayer is heard. Now, what prayer was he talking about? The general consensus is that he wasn't talking about any prayer to have a child. It would be hard to imagine that Elizabeth and Zacharias would have continued to pray for a child beyond the age of childbearing and the reaction that Zacharias gives later on in the chapter to the angelic pronouncement shows us that he really had given up on the idea of having a child. Rather, it is generally thought that the angel was referring to the prayer that had just been prayed by Zacharias. In other words, he was praying for the redemption of Israel. Like if you read on in, into chapter 2, verse 25, you have Simeon, don't you? He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. Little did Zacharias realize or know that his prayer had been answered way beyond what he could have expected. Not only was God actually working to redeem Israel, at one and the very same time, he would also give Zacharias a son who would pave the way for it. Verse 13, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. I think this is fantastic. It really is. It's fascinating, isn't it? Whatever prayer the angel was saying had been answered, that God in his manifold wisdom is able to mesh together both personal longings of individuals and his greater purposes for this world. That is the great theme of scripture from Genesis to Revelation. You have this scarlet cord of the seed that would come and die for sin. It is Jesus who says, doesn't he, in John chapter uh, 5, verse 39, you search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they that testify of me. But at the same time, throughout those scriptures, God is using the lives of ordinary people to accomplish his purposes that ultimately go beyond even the story of our own world. It's mind-blowing. It really is mind-blowing. Purposes that are rooted in the new heavens and the new earth. And so when you read in the Old Testament of, for example, the history of Jacob, that great heel grabber, all his failings and his mistakes uh, and his wanderings and his disobedience and then his obedience and his trust in God. God is working through Jacob to bring about this seed. It's amazing who would come as a sacrifice for sin and rise again from the dead and would beat death, death once and for all and would ascend to heaven and right now is preparing a place for his people. It's wonderful. The Bible is wonderful, and we need to remember this. For your prayer is heard. Wow, wasn't it heard? Now, if we had more time this evening, we would think a little bit more about John the Baptist. But uh, suffice to say, let's think a little bit about his name. God did not 
leave it up to Elizabeth and Zacharias to get those baby name books out and wait for Elizabeth to make the decision because it's always the mothers who make the decision when it comes to naming a child. Maybe, maybe not. Uh, But they don't get a chance, do they? God gives them the name that they are supposed to give to this baby. It was John. What does John mean? It means the Lord is gracious. The Lord is gracious. Perhaps it would have been good for the angel to remind Elizabeth and Zachariah of both his and his wife's uh, name and their meanings, because really the meanings uh, speak volumes into this context. They may well have felt at that present moment in time uh, that uh, as they waited for the consolation of Israel, there was this deep darkness around them beyond what they could bear. They may well have felt that for 400 years, God had been silent and God had indeed left the stage. They may well have felt that there was a shadow over their own home uh, that would never shift. But what does Zacharias mean? What does it mean? It means this, and it's wonderful. The Lord remembers. The Lord remembers. The Lord watches over you. What does Elizabeth mean? My God is an oath, or my God is faithful. In other words, God keeps his promises. God had not forgotten this godly couple. He had not left the stage. He was right there the whole time. And through them, he was keeping his promises to send a redeemer who would save his people from their sins. It's wonderful. In Kladach this evening, you can, on a personal level and as a church, rest in the fact that God is not like us. He is always, always faithful. We may not know the future, but we can be absolutely certain that he never changes. He never changes, and whatever he will do, uh, says he will do. The Lord remembers you. He remembers me. He remembers us. I'm going to close by reading Psalm 121, because I think these words are so heartwarming. I will lift up my eyes to the hills, From whence comes my help? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not allow your foot to be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord shall preserve you from all evil. He shall preserve your soul. The Lord shall preserve your going out and your coming in from this time forth and even forevermore.